I live my life a quarter mile at a time. This is the nine days of Fast and Furious. Welcome to the nine days of Fast and Furious, Monkey Off My Backlog's first limited series. I'm your host, Sam Morris. With me is Tessa Suela and our special guest, friend of the pod, Martha Petrashevsky of Four Nations Report and Martha and Colby Grow Up. Listen to how I did that like I know your last name. That was really good. I'm really impressed. Before we go any further, because Tessa keeps insisting that it's the season for it, let's talk a little bit about holiday spirit. Martha, what are you doing to get in the spirit? So, so far, I, I haven't checked it in a couple days. But I've been, I'm at about like 15 to 17 Christmas movies since October 30th. Um, So I've been going pretty hard on that, uh, which which is like basically almost one every other day at this point. Uh, So it's been a lot. Um, I just felt that we needed a little bit of extra cheer. Thanksgiving is not my favorite holiday, uh, but just the Christmas movies are. I watch Love Actually for the first time. Uh, this year, we'll probably watch it at least one more time. And I made these really cute cards. And as I'm realizing this, I have to send you guys some. Um, but I made these Christmas cards to send to my friends. Uh, so I've been, yeah, I've been doing like little things like that just to get in the spirit. Um, and then I'm taking a cocktail holiday class this Saturday. Uh, yeah, holiday cocktail class. So we're we're doing like the thing, I guess. <laughs> Well, so we had a whole conversation with Colby on our first episode about Christmas movies. What have been your favorite Christmas movies that you have watched so far this year? Oh, yeah. He's doing his little project, isn't he? Well, for Colby, for the Pop Cultures podcast um, that Colby and I are doing, we watched all of the three Santa Clauses. Um, My voice just gave out there. We watched the last three Santa Clauses, or the only three. I want to say those are like some of my favorites because it was just sort of as I was growing up, like these are the movies that I watched, but out of the new ones this year that I've seen, we'll stick with the new ones. I love the princess switch to switched again. And then I also loved um, midnight at the Magnolia, which is more holiday than Christmas. Um, and of course, love actually is an all time fave. Speaking of all time faves, top three Christmas movies of all time. Of all time. time. Oh boy. Okay. Give me a sec. Um, for sure, the holiday. For sure, love actually. So those are the top two. If I had to pick, uh, okay, hold on. I have a list saved in my Google Drive. So let me just talk as I search for this. Um, but what's funny is I don't normally like watch a lot of the older movies. Like some of the stuff. Like um, uh, I haven't seen Home Alone. I haven't seen a Christmas Story. I haven't seen those. Um, I have seen The Wonderful Life. That's a pretty good one. I'm just going to stop right there and say that um, when you were talking about the old Christmas movies and Home Alone was the first one you went with. <laughs> Sam, that came out the year I was born. That I... Mm, mm. Wait, did it? Okay, let me look. I'm... Oh, no, no 1990. No, 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 wait, 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 wait. I don't I think so. Born. It was the year Tessa was born. Yeah, I, I'd... I was not alive yet. <laughs> uh, I, I hate this discussion. Uh, all right, what's the third best Christmas movie of all time? 
So I need to rewatch It's a Wonderful Life. So that might be tied, but I'm going to go with Little Women 2019 for me. Little Women, watching Little Women 2019 on Christmas Day. Was it Christmas Day or Christmas Eve that we saw it? It was Christmas Day. Christmas Day. That has got to be one of my great, last great movie-going experiences. Oh, movies on holidays are always so fun. My mom and I used to go to movies on Thanksgiving. Uh, I remember one year we saw Twilight, (laughs) which was just like a great Thanksgiving. Wouldn't it it have been great to see Timothy Chalamet flail? two Christmas days in a row in the theater? It would. All right, final oh, question. Yeah, Dune. Final Christmas movie question from me. Is Die Hard a Christmas movie or not? Haven't seen it. Can't answer. Wow. Both two you Christmas and Colby. Oh, you guys need to have like a Die Hard watch party. It's on my list for this month. I have two more holiday movies with like my little movie club. So we're going to watch. I'm picking the holiday and then we're also going to watch Die Hard, I think. Tessa, what are you wearing? He said, sitting next to her. <laughs> this is not pre-rehearsed or c- constructive at all. I am wearing one of my favorite Christmas sweaters. I'll actually pivot the camera so you all can see it. Even Ooh, though our that is cute. It. Yeah, it is a red and blue striped Christmas sweater with Snoopy in a Santa hat. It is one of my favorites. It is not the only Christmas sweater I will wear for this podcast, but Christmas sweaters are definitely a way that I show my holiday spirit. And, and I'll just say that uh, I'll remind listeners that Andy, who is not with us today, likes to often say that podcasting is, in fact, a visual medium. Before we ditch all of that holiday cheer, we still have to do our podcast within a podcast. Our podcast within a podcast is Sam's Holiday Cocktail. Sam, what are you drinking tonight, and how could we make it? Tonight's cocktail is the Apple Jack Sazerac. It's fun to say. Ooh, ah. Not necessarily as fun to drink yet. I have ideas. A Sazerac is a wonderful, wonderful drink that uses rye, Peychaud's bitters, and maybe maybe a touch of sugar. But the important thing is the absent rinse in the glass. The Applejack Sazerac takes the rye out and puts Applejack brandy in its place. This is where we start to get a little tricky. So you're going to take two ounces of Applejack, put it in a a mixing glass with some ice. You're going to throw in the Peychaud's bitters just like you normally would. Give it two to three shakes, or if you're me, a couple more. If you're making an Applejack Sazerac, instead of a rinse of absinthe, you put in a little maple syrup. And I thought about that, and I thought, mmm, that's going to make it a little too sweet. What if we keep the absinthe, the rinse, in the glass? So I did it. I'm not sure I was wrong, but here's the deal. I would put a little more maple syrup in. I thought it sounded weird, so I only put a splash in, but you should probably put something like a third of an ounce in. So two ounces Applejack brandy, three, let's say three splashes of Peychaud's bitters, maybe a third of an ounce of uh, maple syrup. You stir that around, you straight it into the glass. The glass can be soaked, or sorry, rinsed and absent. At your discretion, absinthe is a wonderful thing, and that's how you make that. Isn't absinthe illegal? It is not. It is not illegal, and it is no longer hallucinogenic. They it don't. Never was. They. They. It is not like the drink that you'll see in Moulin Rouge. It will mess you up, as I can attest. However, it is not like the drink in Moulin Rouge that they are the Green Fairy. It's not. It's not quite like that. 
This has been a podcast within a podcast. Sam's Holiday Cocktail. Code MONKEY10 for 10% off your next order at samscocktails.com. All right, Tessa. This is normally the part of the podcast where you would summarize Tokyo Drift. Speaking of spirits and holiday spirits. Oh, oh God. Hello. I am here from uh, beyond the world of fatherhood to... Are you with Phil Spector? No, no, no. I'm not with that Spectre, but I am with a Spectre. Wait, wait, wait. Blofeld? No. Did we we talk too much trash about James Bond yesterday and now Spectre's here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a Spectre of Christmas presents. Yeah, exactly. Oh. The, well, this is actually the Spectre of those Corona bottles that were not in this movie, <laughs> if I remember correctly. That is correct. The... Uh, I, I really quickly wanted to just come in here and tell you not only all about Tokyo Drift really quick, but also the fact that I haven't seen this movie since May of 2006 or maybe June of 2006 when it was in theaters. So what's June. your best, what's your best, uh, what's your best summary? What's your best memory of this? All film? right. Listen up. First of all, you got the star of the show, my man, Little Bow Wow, as an amazing runaway performance that no one expected after all all the weird stuff i believe with nickelodeon at the time anyway little bow wow's up there he's he's awesome uh i forgot the main guy's name i think he's played by luke someone uh lucas black lucas black yes there we go lucas black is the uh it doesn't matter all the white guys in this film have generic white guy names it's true except for Right. Uh, he, he's almost in this Mr. Uh, Miyagi relationship with a guy named Han. Uh, I remember Han shows him that, hey, in Japan, if you go fast enough, you can just outrun the police and they give up, which is awesome. By the way, the Japanese word for police is keisatsu. Just letting you know, if you ever in Japan, you hear someone yell, keisatsu, run, run. And they won't try to catch you because apparently that's the thing. So this is all about the drift, right? When you're I believe the the line, the quote was, when you're out of control, you're in control, or something along those lines. Stuff happens, they get they get to do things with the Yakuza, and then I remember that Han shot first his car into another car and blew up, so uh, Lucas Black's mentor's done, and then they do a, uh, a little uh, racy race thingy thing, and... At the end, Vin Diesel comes in for a, a random reason. That's actually a surprisingly accurate summary for someone who hasn't seen it since it came out. Wait, you haven't watched it? Like, since right, 2006? Right. I have not watched it since 2006. I believe June of 2006. Maybe June 10th or June 16th. I can't remember which day. Why are you here? Uh, I'm here to drop some Christmas spirit on you and talk about my man Little Bow Wow. With the most underrated movie in this entire series that I haven't watched since, oh god, it's been 14 (laughs) years. Anyway, I've got like an, I've got this little creature here that screams and like sprays everywhere. So I gotta go take care of that. You guys have a good one. Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Ho Ho Ho, uh, and little Bow Wow Miss, of course. Let that be the case. You know, that was really just no way for Andy to talk about his dog. You know, Bart's a nice kid. G- goodbye, Andy. <laughs> <laughs>
And, and just as quickly, he left. Yeah, I mean, I think Andy did a pretty good job summarizing the film. I mean, uh, Sean, that is the name of the Sean. of the bland white Sean. character, is this troubled kid. We get this race scene at the beginning of the film where he races against a high school peer for a girl who seems not worth it. Anyway, he's like a troubled kid. They've had to move around a lot because he's gotten into all of these racing problems. He runs afoul of the law and gets shipped off to his deadbeat dad in Japan. What Andy didn't mention that I think is hilarious about this movie is that this movie not only moves us to Japan, it also moves us into high school. The other two movies are really about adults and about, you know, the adult drag racing scenes in L.A. and Miami. This is about a high school drag racing scene, which I really wasn't expecting them to to go there, but... That's where we are. So he's in high school in this new city, and he immediately finds the bad kids, which I think is hilarious, and gets involved, like Andy said, with the this. He is Han Yaku, Yakuza as well. Is Han Yakuza? Well, I don't think he is. He's working with the Yakuza, so he's at least Yakuza adjacent. Han is kind of like, I guess he's kind of like the guy. He's like Matt Damon's character in Ocean's Eleven where he has powerful friends and powerful parents. I don't know about Han's parents, but just bear with me. He has powerful friends that he works with, but he can still go off and do his own projects. Yeah. That's the sort of the best way to explain it. Yeah, I mean, like, he has his own garage, which I thought was really cool. Yeah. Um, that's a, actually one of the best set pieces of the movie. Like, I, I just wanted to, like, spend more time in that garage, to be honest with you. It seemed like a really cool place to hang out. But, yeah, so he gets involved with Han, who is working with this other kid uh, who's known as DK, the Drift King. Drift King. And uh, this other kid is kind of a jerk. He works for his uncle, who is Yakuza. He's sort of playing at being a gangster in his own right. And so Sean races him at the beginning of the film, loses badly, because he does not know how to drift, which I think is the important central concept of this film, the drifting. Can one of you explain to me... What is drifting exactly? How would you explain that? Well, I can't I can't do it uh, as as much as I wish I could, but drifting is sort of they explain in the movie if you've seen it, you can rip the e-brake while you're you know, you're traveling forward, but the e-brake will like kind of break one set of wheels. I don't know if it's the back or the front, but then you'll sort of spin like those those wheels will lock up, so it allows you to sort of spin around a corner or spin it's it's mostly around corners uh but it's sort of like okay oops there's not enough friction uh we're gonna drift as we're trying to figure out what's happening to the car yeah i mean like i I don't know anything about cars as you know if you've listened to the other two episodes of this podcast but it to me it seems like kind of like leaning into the spin a little bit like instead of resisting the spin you're sort of just like going with it it's okay so i know you guys live in the south but have you ever driven in snow like heavy snow yes i grew up in kansas okay perfect so it's kind of like that when you are trying to break um at a stop sign let's say and the snow it's just a little bit icy you kind of like fishtail out it's like that but at a much higher speed and the intention is to spin out and not like stop which is what you would do at a stop sign (laughs) And to me, I mean, I think that's, I mean, besides what Andy said, that to me is really the summary of the rest of the film is he's trying to learn how to do this thing, basically. 
I mean, he has to work for Han to work off his debt because he wrecks one of Han's cars. But mainly it's him like trying to learn how to drift, trying to get involved with this scene, trying to steal DK's girlfriend away from him. I think that's where we c- it would be a good time to kind of segue into discussing different points of this film. To me, I found this the female character in this to be a repetition of the female characters in the other two films that we've seen so far. She's not really there to do anything. Even her plot points seem very similar to like Eva Mendez's character in Too Fast, Too Furious, where it's like, she's with this guy. She doesn't really want to be with him. He's kind of a bad guy. And so like this other person comes in and she can drive, but she doesn't race. You know, like there's just sort of, it's sort of like a, a, the female characters in this so far have been stock characters. And I've heard that that changes as we go on through the series. And I don't want any spoilers, but I'm, I'm curious what you guys think about the female characters so far. So based on the first movie, I would say you can kind of tell that Michelle Rodriguez is sort of the focal point. She's not in two, I believe she's not in this movie. But yeah, I mean, I think this, these, this series in these first three movies do have sort of a female character problem. Um, it's very male dominated. I mean, that's sort of when you think of, you think of like typical masculinity, you're like cars, girls, drugs, like that's, that's sort of the brand that they went for in these first three movies. I think they sort of figured it out after this and made it less, you know, emphasis on all of that. Um, but yeah, it, it's kind of like boring to me. I, I don't even know the women's name and I've seen this movie like maybe 10 times. I, I just always forget it. So I just feel like it's a pretty forgettable character. I think they could have done a better job. And I, I don't like, I mean, in this one, she did drive cars. They do have that like nice little drifting scene down the mountain. Uh, but I think they could have made her more like into a stronger character and not like, oh, I'm DK's girlfriend. Like, what do I know? Sort of thing. Yeah, I feel like in every single film we've seen so far, maybe not Too Fast, Too Furious, but in Too Fast, Too Furious, we get Suki. Um, who is the, mm-hmm. the female race car driver, although we talked about how she sort of plays the girlfriend character for the rest of the film. But even in the first movie, we got this like really perfunctory, like, oh, Jordana Brewster's character can drive too. Like, you know, just yeah. like this one scene where she drives. So I'm, I was just, that's something that I noticed in this film too. I'm like, all right, let's get to the, like the actual good stuff with female characters here. What did you think, Sam? What, what, what struck you about this film? As I mentioned on the first episode, this was the first Fast and Furious movie that I saw. The first time that I saw it, I believe I turned the channel just pretty much as soon as he arrived in Japan. So the first time that I saw it all the way through, a little while later, uh, I saw those beginning scenes with a uh, home improvement kid, and I just hated it. That's, it makes a good case for not caring about backstory and just putting us in, which we've complained about, you know, not knowing you know, like Brian's, you know, backstory or anything. And we talked about how that's a weakness. It's actually a weakness that we get it here. But I I remember getting back on the plane. So I have two very distinct memories of getting back on the plane and coming home from Japan in uh, January of 96. The first one is they showed the Nicole Kidman movie To Die For on the plane. And I just remember uh, his kids from, he was from Seattle. And I, I just remember, like, he was several rows up in the plane, and as soon as the movie was over, he just looked back and just mouthed, at, I can't repeat the words on this podcast, but just mouthed it back, and I'm like, I just shrugged back at him, like, 
this is our introduction back into American culture. What is this? Anyway, <laughs> and the second one I have is just hearing about all the cool things that everybody else did because everybody who was in the exchange program from America, so who was on the flight back with us, had been in bigger cities like Tokyo or Osaka. And I was in smack dab in the middle of the Northern Island in an extremely rural area. I had no exposure to anything remotely resembling anything you see in this movie. And um, it's, it's not too soon to talk about it anymore. It was for a long time. It definitely was when I saw this movie at first. But it just, every time I see these scenes, I just, you know, not the Yakuza stuff, not the street racing stuff, obviously, but just seeing all the lights and the signs and the busyness and the shops and the, the pachinko parlors, the, the restaurants, the vending machines, I, I definitely miss it. I didn't, I missed it when I was living there because I wasn't anywhere near it. But the times that I've been through Tokyo, for example, I just, uh, it's just so nice. It was nice seeing a movie there. It's like how I feel watching Lost in Translation. I just really like spending more time in that, you know, location. And so the movie's good, but but I really like seeing the stuff shot there. I have a question for both of you. What so far, so we've watched three movies and they've been in three different locations, LA, Miami, Tokyo. Which has been the best setting for this so far? I think that is maybe a two-part question for me at least. Because I think the third one, Tokyo Drift, is my favorite so far out of the ones that you guys have seen. Is it the best for street racing? I don't know. I don't know if it's like that believable. Maybe. I don't know. I've never been to Tokyo. But I think like authentically Miami rings true of street racing for me. I do not know why. I've never been to Miami. (laughs) But that's just like, it, it sort of speaks to like, I don't, I don't know, because you get, like, Tyrese in that movie, and what am I even trying to say? I don't know, but I think, like, Miami is probably, I would get more of the street racing vibe than I would L.A., even though they do go back to L.A. in later movies, or Japan. Yeah, I mean, and do we think this has to do with uh, Justin Lin taking over the the directorship? Justin Lin has directed a lot of these movies. We've talked about this before. He comes in, takes over this movie, and then immediately moves us to Japan. And as we were watching this, Sam made a really excellent point about how this movie inverts what happens in the first couple of movies is in terms of the cars. Do you remember the point you made? In the first Fast and Furious movie, we get the, the I will refer to them as toy cars, as a couple of people have so far. In the series, we get the tuned-up uh, Hondas, Mitsubishis, Suzuki cars, right? The toy cars. And then Dom reveals the Charger, you know, the, um, the American muscle, right? And so in Too Fast, Too Furious, we, again, start off with the toy cars. And then American muscle. You know, they win the, they win the two cars off of, the, uh, off of the, the goons, right? This is an inversion of that, where... Sean comes to Tokyo and laughs at their little toy cars. He calls them toy cars. And so the the thing inverts, right? Because it's like, we race in parking garages. Go ahead and try that 
Try that with a charger. See what happened. Now, of course, at the end of the day, we end up mixing cultures. We end up being multicultural. We put the toy car inside the muscle car. If only we could all just work together, the world would be a better place because this movie is about world peace. <laughs> I think maybe that's actually what they're trying to do, and it's just weird. But but yeah, it does start off with that inversion, and it's I think it's really interesting. I mean, the whole point of this entire franchise is that American muscle wins. I thought it was family. All the time. Oh, that too. And Corona. Secondary. <laughs> no, uh, yeah, family comes later, though. But I, I think it's, I mean, listen, I don't know anything about cars. I've driven the same car for probably <laughs> six years now, six or seven years and it's a, it's a Volkswagen. It's a 2008 Volkswagen. I'm not winning street races in it. It gets me around. It does the job. Uh, do I wish I knew about cars? Absolutely. But is it is it a Jetta? That's by not any why I watch the movie. It is a Jetta. Yeah. Its f- name is Shadow. It, right. Yeah. That's the. All right. Quick show of hands. Raise your hand if you can drive a manual transmission. Listen, I don't want to be called out like that. But here, let me tell you a story about that. Uh, let, if if you're listening to this, you you can probably guess which one of the three of us raised our hands. <laughs> Go on, Martha. Cause you're old. That's right. no. no, that's right. Uh, my dad bought like my brother and I a car in high school, and it was manual transmission. So I did learn how to drive it. I just was not good at it. So like technically, I probably could drive it if I was forced to. I was I I the hills freaked me out. I couldn't do the hills. I would just roll back. And I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, clutch. Yeah. That's my story. <laughs> Fun fact. Not only was the car that I learned to drive on a manual transmission, it also, it did not have any NOS, but it had turbo. So I, I learned. Yeah, it's, it's real fun. By the way, I will say this. I kind of miss driving a manual transmission, especially that particular car, because I remember rolling up at a red light and this is a thing that actually happened multiple times in my, you're all going to look at me weird because you know me now, but I used to roll up to red lights and basically the car version of the Millennium Falcon, and it doesn't matter who was next to me, and when that light turned green, they were gone, and I loved it. I loved it so much. I will say this franchise, so what I've seen of it so far, has made me not more interested in cars. Like, I'm not going to, like, go and become, like, someone who's, like, really into cars now. But it kind of made me feel like, okay, like, this subject is way more interesting than I probably would have thought beforehand. Like, it made me, I, I don't know, like, watching this is not as boring, I guess, as I was afraid it was going to be. So everybody didn't spend time growing up with their dad in a garage, like, pushing the clutch while he was working on the car? Nobody else? No. Oh, okay. You're old. Good. Well, that's the thing. Like, I see these movies, and every time I see them working on cars, like, I don't know how to do any of this. But, you know, the whole thing about, like, family and working on cars, it's like one of the two things my dad and I did growing up. It's the one I did not enjoy. But it's one of the two things we did. All right. So, go ahead. Automatic transmission was invented in 1921, so it makes sense that you guys would do right. um, manual transmission. Right. I'm never going to stop making old jokes. There, no, 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 you shouldn't, <laughs> and here's why: because I deserve it. <laughs> Quick question: Better movie, Too Fast or Tokyo Drift? This one. 
Okay. Yeah, definitely Tokyo Drift, because I think that the characters have a lot more chemistry. We talked about the lack of chemistry in the last one between the characters, even though none of the original characters, besides the brief appearance of Dom at the end, the, the chemistry between Han and and Sean, I'm sorry, I'm just never going to remember the white dude's names Sean. in this. Uh, Sean and Han, and between, like, even, you know, DK and, like, the, the interactions between the characters, Lil Bow Wow's character, whose name I also can't remember. Like, Twinkie! Twinkie, thank he you. He is the best movie character ever named after a hostess snack treat. <laughs> And it is Bow Wow, not Little Bow Wow. Like, I, I believe that all of these characters have their motivations for being here, for being part of it. Like, I, I, you know, this didn't try to be a Bond movie, which was kind of what Too Fast, Too Furious was trying to be. Like, it, it was just a, a little movie about racing in Tokyo, and it, it made sense to me in that, in that context. And I also think the action sequences were better, even though there were no car pranks. All right, yes or no, Tokyo Drift, better than The Fast and the Furious, the first movie. Yes. Yeah, I think so. All right, it is now time for Fast Facts. Born ready. Since this is the third movie in the franchise, I have three Fast Facts for you. Did you know, in Japan, these movies were not known by the names Fast or Furious, They were known as Wild Speed. I did not know that. Tokyo Drift is known as Wild Speed 3. (laughs) That's funny. Out of the eight movies in this franchise, not including Hobbs and Shaw, half of them are rotten on Rotten Tomatoes. Half of them. Martha, do you know what the most rotten movie of them all is? I would maybe guess this one. Nope. The fourth one, then? That is correct. Fast and Furious is the most rotten of them all at 28%. Dang. Too Fast, Too Furious is 36% rotten. The Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift is also 36% rotten. (laughs) Which means objectively, because we know Rotten Tomatoes is the measure of objectivity on this planet. Too Fast, Too Furious, and the Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift are equally bad movies which is funny because it's clearly not true well here's the thing i've been waiting to say this and i think it's a good time to say it a lot of people think these movies are very lowbrow they think it's just another action film i think those people are wrong i think there are a lot of depth to these movies and at first glance it can be like oh yeah cars men whatever um that's not really the case I i think these movies are very well thought out Maybe debating, you know, we could have gone without eight. I'll I'll admit that, uh, but I am excited for nine. Uh, There's a lot of elements to these movies that action movies just don't have. Like, they, that's why it's been so successful for so long. Like, these movies make billions of dollars. I don't know if that's true. Like, over the course of the franchise, I'm sure they've made, you know, a couple billion dollars. And that's not something to ignore. But when I tell people like, oh, yeah, the Fast and Furious movies are great. Like, these are actually some of my favorite movies. I think they're fantastic. People give me a weird look. And I'm like, no, have you seen them? And they're like, no. I'm like, well, why are you saying that then? (laughs) So it's interesting what you said, because I think that let's say Rotten Tomatoes did like a fresh start program, like a like a, you know, early release. Let's see how you behave this time. I think a lot of these early movies, 
especially Tokyo Drift, or maybe just Tokyo Drift, would be seen much better. Starting with uh, Fast Five, every movie is fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, which I think speaks to your point that once people started to understand what this series is, they saw it a lot differently. Which, you know, it became something different, that's true, but it was probably not as bad as some of these movies are early movies are given not credit for. Or just stop having white men on Rotten Tomatoes. Tessa, you hadn't seen any of these movies before the start of the podcast. I know that you have feelings about this. As the first timer, tell us about it. I mean, I'll admit that I probably was a person who believed the stereotypes that Martha was talking about in terms of this is just hyper-masculine, which it is, uh, you know, at least the the movies we've seen so far. We, we can talk about the hyper-masculine gaze in these movies. But, you know, I just kind of thought, like, oh, these are just, like, I, I don't know why, but I always kind of associated them with The Expendables, like, this, like, very, like, male-heavy, like, oh, this is just a bunch of dumb, like, action movies that I don't, like, don't really care about and as I've said on Twitter and elsewhere my only real experience with these movies I've managed to remain spoiler free somehow over the last 20 years but (laughs) and maybe it's just because I wasn't paying attention but you know like my only real exposure to these movies is that every couple of years another trailer would come out and like somebody would be doing something in a car that was progressively more and more fantastic and I would just be like this is just about like the weird things they can do in cars. And that's what these movies are about. But I, I've actually, and I know you've said that it gets that way um, at some point, or it, it becomes something else at some point. But I have to say, like, with the exception of Too Fast, Too Furious, which is objectively kind of a bad movie, like, I've really liked these three so far. Like, I, I really enjoyed the first one more than I thought I did. I've enjoyed this one too. And and honestly, I've enjoyed what Justin Lin has done with the third one more than I have the other two, just because I think Justin Lin is a really good filmmaker. So I'm excited to see what he does with the other one. And just just to add on to that, I'm very curious to see what you will think of the sixth movie and what they can do in cars. Sam knows what I'm talking about. I do. So our last fast fact, Vin Diesel. Power player, power Hollywood player. As you know, he did not appear in Too Fast, Too Furious, even though Universal prepared an entire script for him just in case. He showed up in the third movie to save the franchise. Tokyo Drift tested poorly, so they came to him and begged him, can we put you in a scene at the end of the movie to get people jazzed? And he said, you know what? You can, and I won't even take payment for it but I get the rights to Riddick. And they gave it to him. That's pretty cool. Which, if you haven't seen... my See, my familiarity with Vin Diesel is not from these movies. It's from the Pitch Black Riddick movies. And if you haven't seen those, I highly suggest that you do. They're actually, I think, pretty good as well. Maybe not the third one, but the, the first two, I think, are really interesting to talk about. I will say also, this scene at the end answered a question that Colby had in the first episode. Colby asked us in the first episode if Vin Diesel's character is supposed to be white. And we had a little conversation about that because we weren't sure. When he shows up in this in this in the third film in Tokyo Drift, the music that's playing, like the the entire film, the music that's been playing has been sort of this new metal. It's been uh Kid Rock, it's been these uh, Japanese 
you know, techno beats, um, which have been really interesting. But when Vin Diesel shows up at the end, it's a Latinx beat that's playing. And so I think that's supposed to answer our question that he isn't actually white, that he's supposed to be playing a Latinx character. That's just something I found interesting. It's very funny to me because I wouldn't call like Vin Diesel is obviously the brains behind this franchise or like maybe not the brains, but like the the backbone, like he is fast and furious. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't call him my favorite character though. So I think we're going to need to revisit this. I I just need to guess on all of these podcasts actually. (laughs) um, And then we can discuss. (laughs) All right. We've had the fastbacks. Let's have some furious stats. And by the way, the key word for all of these stats is under performing. (laughs) <laughs> the budget for this film was $85 million. So we are moving up and up in terms of budget. But the opening weekend domestic, just under $24 million. Underwhelming. Total box office is 158 So that is less than double its original budget. Too fast. Tripled the budget with box office take. So there you go. Now, the top five weekend for the opening weekend for Tokyo Drift. A movie about cars won the box office that week. Pixar's Cars. <laughs> it was not Tokyo Drift. Cars helped, Cars took the top box office spot that weekend. Two, three, and four that weekend were new releases. Number two, Nacho Libre. The Lucha Libre classic film starring Jack Black beat out Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift, which came in at number three. What came in at number four, you ask? The Lake House. That's the one with Keanu, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Isn't That's Lake Bell. So, Keanu and uh, Sandra Bullock. So much, like, so much like Too Fast, Too Furious, this Fast and Furious movie found itself in the top five with the Keanu Reeves movie. That's really cool. Number five. The breakup. And I know what you're thinking. I thought it wasn't Keanu Reeves movies that shared opening weekends with Fast and Furious. I thought it was X-Men movies. That's what Tessa told me in the last app. Mm -hmm. Well, number six that week was X3, The Last Stand. Yeah, the third Fast and Furious and the third X-Men movie. No Corona moments in this movie, so we are still at a grand total of two. Not enough, IMO. I just want to say, by the way, it's it's really ironic. I mean, I'm, I'm sure Corona has had a real tough year. (laughs) I mean, that Corona has had a real tough year. The other one's doing just fine. Family count, though. Family count. After no mentions of family in Too Fast, Too Furious, we actually do. We did have two in this movie. The first one comes 40 minutes in when Sean. Sean. Asks if these people are a bunch of, is a family full of drift nuts. So it was ironic. It was an ironic, sarcastic use of family. But the fourth use of family, Dom Toretto himself talking about family. And that's really where we live in this series. He calls Han family, and that's how he meets Sean. He says Han was like family. That's right. Han was like family. All right, guys, it's time to scatter. Join us tomorrow for the next installment of the Nine Days of Fast and Furious. You won't want to miss Brian and Dom's reunion. In the least creative sequel title ever, Fast and Furious. Over the next six days, we have more guests and lots more holiday spirit lined up. You better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout because Jason Statham and The Rock are taking over for Santa this Christmas Eve. 
Watch along with us. Tweet at us. Email us. Let us know all your fast and furious thoughts. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at monkeybacklog and email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Martha, where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter at Hans number one fan. No, just kidding. Uh, you can find me at Martha underscore Vader. And you can find me on the Four Nations Report podcast as well as Martha and Colby Grow Up. All right. You can find Tessa on Twitter and Letterboxd at Swela Tessa, S-W-E-H-L-A. You can find Andy on Twitter and Letterboxd at Hebrews Pale Ale. And you can find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris 9 and on Letterboxd at Archie Leach 9. Also, check out our regular weekly episodes of Monkey Off My Backlog, as well as our newest series, Monkey Nights. Our special holiday theme song is Scott Holmes' version of Jingle Bells and can be found on scottholmesmusic.com. Find the podcast on Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's all about family. See you next time.